Yo, this is Zero from El Vu and LA Natives Podcast. And I'm happy to announce that Malinali Superfoods now has a storefront location. And we invite all our community to come and partake in our family recipes, in our ancient foods, and in our intention. Our intention is to gather our community, to share the wisdom of our ancestors, but most of all, have a place to be ourselves. So we invite you to come to 4528 Whittier Boulevard in the heart of East Los Angeles. So come, stop by, enjoy our awas, our superfood smoothies, our nutrient powders, and understand that food is our medicine. Our ancestors were brilliant engineers, and they created strong, powerful foods that we share with the community. Aho, Ometeo, Tonansi, Tonato. On this new road. No turning back. We have our ancestors with us. We're going to continue to dance with them. Dreaming them. Calling them. Seeing them. We are becoming what we were. It is borrowed that Maya prophecies seven triangles of light. Keep walking. You are the spirit of Unaku. Keep walking. We the human we are doing the spirit of Unaku. Always, they're connected. Science and religion. In dreams, we learn from the Maya gods when to plant and when to harvest, when to set the fire, and when to do the corn ceremony. But what we're digging up, what we're coming up with, is part of our history. And the men that lived here are some of the greatest men we've ever had. And it's a fact that we're getting to know more and more and more about the life of these people. They still maintain their customs. They still maintain their ways of organizing their societies. And it's very exciting to see how much of the ancient my way of life is still alive. American history does not begin in 1492 with Columbus. It begins in 200 BC with the first Maya king who wrote his name on a stump. What is happening now is the people who made these places, people like Yashpak or Bird Jaguar or Fakal, 
are getting back to their voices. They are becoming real to us and speaking to the people of the 20th century about who built this place and why and what they felt and what they thought about the world. These are not anonymous people anymore. You are the spirit of Unaku. Keep walking. We the human, we are doing the spirit of Unaku. Yo, yo, LA Natives, Las Aslan Podcast. Welcome back, people. I yo, see yo. you, Al Red Dog. Thank you for tapping in with us. Today we have a good guest. Once again, he she kind of reminds me of what kind of Haron does in the community where, you know, these individuals um, invest a lot of their personal time to do the work that maybe some families don't have the time to do you know because we shouldn't feel guilty about not being able to have available time to fight our own oppression that's not the way oppression works oppression distracts you eats up all of your time so that you can minimize the severity of what's happening and um this young lady <laughs> um is, is a community worker just like head on and uh, we thought it would be great to kind of have her talk a little bit more about her her life choices right because you are a mom yes right see and but you are very active in the community as well yes. you know in small ways and big ways I know um, Yvette was one of the helpers that helped us um, resolve our issues with the tongvas in a good way and I thought it was a good, it was a good breath of fresh air to have somebody who maybe I hadn't known because I've been doing this type of work in Los Angeles for over twenty years. So it's kind of hard not to meet somebody that <laughs> isn't a part of this. But you were a fresh face. Head on was a fresh face, and I thought that the issue was really long. So putting you individuals into you know the new the next generation. It has to carry on the torch of our work. Um, well, I just decided, Armando decided to have you come to our house and say hi and explain yourself and, and really inspire other young women, you know, because right now is the time to really put that emphasis on our other, our other part, right? Like I know I love my partner and I try to support her as best as I can. You know, shout out to Jenny. She couldn't be here. She had to do some doula work, but she would love to be here with you. And she, she's a big part of uh, our community. So, um, but nevertheless, we're here. Thank you. Just thank you both, Armando, hermano, for having me <laughs> and being so welcoming. Thank you. That's what come You know, me. I want to highlight the point that Zero made time, mm. right? A lot of people either waste their time or put it to good use, right? And I'm sure you know, Yvette, a lot of people that we probably surround ourselves with might not be able to do what you, you do. Yes. Right? Some people come up to me and say, hey, Armando, man, like, keep influencing. You're doing what I can't do because they have, a, you know, family or, you know, other responsibilities and stuff. But again, you know, for you to step it up and, 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 and be a leader, and be part of the leadership in the community. Much respect, yeah. Yvette. Give you. us a little bit of background and brief bio, uh, a, a quick introduction. Go ahead. So my name is Yvette, mm -hmm. Yvette Xochillot. 
Um, I was born and raised in Mexico City, beautiful Mexico, Tenochtitlan. The F, the main city. Wow, yep. cool. Uh, I kind of lived half of my life in the country. Mm -hmm. My family is from Hidalgo. Okay. So even though I was a city girl, I lived and learned and grew in in the fields, you know, in the campo, on los elotes, las mazorcas, el maíz, el las habas, frijol. It was just beautiful. And so you helped it grow the crops. Yes, like uh, my my grand. That was an outlet. Honestly, every time that my grandparents will take me to the fields, it was like a feeling of freedom wow. and connection. And I guess now being here and looking back and looking at the bigger picture, I grew up so traditionally indigenous without knowing mm. that it was indigenous. Right. Well, that's the, that's, that's the effect of colonization. That's the effect of, of, uh, you know, kind of having to navigate ourselves through genocide yes you know where you know you're even afraid to say look at how our connection with the earth is indigenous because you're afraid of well is that is that cool now can we can we say that now you oh know? and i think in in mexico mm -hmm. there is something that makes you want to reject that part of you right there you know i never realized how racist Mexico is until I came here, mm. but there we see it through class, through mm. being poor, through being dark, through being you, you, people who live based on appearance, you right. know. And you're well, from my travels to Mexico, I know that that was kind of a shameful thing to say that you're a native or oh, or, yes. or Indio, Indio or, yep, or or that was a derogatory term where that you know, when I toured Mexico City. And I went and interviewed at like very, pre, pretty big publications, like big um, uh, media, mainstream mainstream media outlets. Like it would be comparable to like the LA Weekly, the LA Times. Mm -hmm. I actually of, remember those segments too. Yeah. Legendary segments, by the way, Zero. In, in Mexico City, yeah. right? And yeah. they're tripping that US American grown children are wanting to be native. That was the first question they asked me. Yep. Like, what? Why do you want to be native? And I was like, why wouldn't you guys want to be native? I mean, look at these temples. And then I, you break down the significance or why that's important to you and your subject matter and your whole artistry, because that's what El Vu was about. It was about studying our past. And, it, and the best way I could describe it is just a dark... It's just darkness and you're walking in there like yes. trying to grab things, yep. you know, and you grab onto very magnificent, magnificent things and, and you put pride in yourself and then you go back home to the origin of where it was. And they're like, we're confused on why you like to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I think um, being indigenous in Mexico is symbolic to oppression for being forgotten, being poor, being left out or out of the conversation. And it's so painful that people want to reject it. Right. It's a way of survival. Right. And again, I came here when I was 15. Mm. So I, I was old enough to remember. Mm. I 
I remember since I was three years old. Wow. I grew up between dead bodies, you know, wow. between shootings, between wow. not very different from what we see here with the gang violence mm. and, and, you know, um, police killings. Mm. And, I mean, Mexico City is like the epicenter for political movements. Mm. And I paid attention. Mm. I always paid attention. I... I always like to ask questions, but it was always like, no estás de metiche, no estás preguntona, go out and play. Like, what are right. you doing here? But I didn't like that. Right. Um, then, I don't know, it's, I, I think being here and being able to look back at the bigger picture, there's one, some nostalgia to reconnect with the roots, but I now can see the importance of keeping the culture, the tradition, the language alive, because in Mexico, it's the massacre, the pain, the genocide, mm -hmm. and how we are connected among the, throughout Turtle Island, throughout the entire continent. Mm -hmm. Mexico is really nationalist, mm -hmm. where, you know, I took so much pride in being the, la, la de la escolta, la banderada. I was, I always succeeded in school. I was the smartest kid. I won second place in poetry national level. Mm. Um, the educational system in Mexico is very different. From oh my goodness! Yeah. Like, Can you explain a little bit, like maybe like how elementary or like the first years of school are? Because it's kind of like I remember everyone I've talked to who is like first generation, second generation. Every parent that I talked to was like. I wish I could have gone to school. I could have, <laughs> I went to third grade and I had to go work after that. Mm. And, and it was like, it's almost like they took elementary and made it college because over here it's like, oh, not all of us go to college, uh, but that's not a big deal. As long as you got your high school diploma, you're, you're competent enough to work. Well, my father's from La Ruana, Michoacan, uh -huh. small little Pueblo nothing but dirt roads and he never once ever mentioned to me he even went to school right wow you see y yes it's it's something that happens a lot in mexico one is because in mexico you don't get everything for free mm. even kindergarten or elementary school you have to pay for right. the uniform you have to pay for notebooks uh all the school supplies it's not given to you mm. um and it's really hard. School in Mexico, goddamn, it's... Uh, when I came here, I was a sophomore, 10th grade. Mm. So in Mexico, I had just finished uh, La Secundaria, which is middle school here. Mm. Um, and when they did the transcript, they, like, they transferred my credits, my grades from Mexico to here. My GPA was 4.2, mm. and my math level was pre-calculus. Whoa. Wow, and, and I mean, I, I was a good student and I was smart, but not that smart like to be pre-calculus here. Mm. So, there the standards in the American school system are lower for one. Mm -hmm. One, but I think it's a good. I, I don't think it's so bad to be honest. Mm. In Mexico, when you go to summer school, they give you more homework. Mm -hmm. It's almost like this thing that you have to be excellent, that you have to succeed in always take validation through your grades. I was a good student, not because I was like smart. I was a good student because I was forced to. Mm -hmm. uh, my father would never, never accept a un ocho 
and you know they use numbers from five it's an f mm. 10 being an a plus my dad never accepted an eight mm. or a nine mm. it always had to be like mm -hmm. the essence and which is like straight a's mm -hmm. and i mean it worked <laughs> mm -hmm. it worked but i it was also a way of escaping the environment around me the abuse mm. um but yeah since you go to middle school in mexico you have to pay for everything and La preparatoria, which is high school, it's not free either. Mm. You have to pay tuition, you have to pay for supplies, you have to pay for uniforms, you have to pay for everything. So that's where a lot of people get limited and they don't get the chance because they cannot afford to go to school. And there's places like Ayotzinapa, La Escuela Rural, where it's meant to be free, but the schools are falling apart. And they only give you limited options like become teachers, right? There's no opportunity for people from these backgrounds to become a doctor, become a lawyer, or even explore what they want to do because they're only given an option. So very loosely, um, Mexico sounds a lot like, like India, mm. where you have this really rich, rich class. Yes. And then, you know, obviously the majority of the people are poor. Yes. And then in that poverty, you're only limited to certain things. Yes. Like, well, we're going to teach you. You're going to have the opportunity to go to school, but we only teach you to be a teacher. Exactly. We can't give you the credentials to be a doctor, a psychologist, whatever it is, um, surgeon, whatever it is the community needs. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really what kind of, I think the idea was, but it got so limited in resources because you're talking about schools that are publicly funded, but there's no public or funding. You know, it's like The problem with this, and I can speak very uh, precisely on Ayotzinapa, which yeah. is a case that I'm very familiar with, is that the government was keeping the money from them. Well, so, you, you know, the, the corruption. Yes, exactly. So that is one of the biggest problems of Mexico, corruption. But now that corruption, it's not just coming from the government, but it's coming from cartels, mm. which now control 80% of the country. So, you know, coming here and even having the opportunity to be alive because we came escaping violence, it was not just like my mom said, like, oh, like, let's go and see what happens. No, we escaped violence. We were not only familiar violence, but state and cartel violence that I, you know, I'm, I don't want to give many details, but my family was prosecuted for years that we had to keep moving. And at one point we just had to leave. Wow. And then to come back here. So then you're displaced again. Exactly. That that's, for me to be forced out of my home, my country, my culture, everything that I've known, and come back home, which is California, where my family was displaced in the 1800s. And now people telling me, go back to where you came from, like, oh, you mean Bakersfield? <laughs> That's where my family came from. But now have like these titles, these labels, and for someone, to tell me that I don't belong here, it's like, you don't know what you're saying. And, and now it's very personal. Now it's, 
my survival. It's my life. It's the, res the resilience of the people before me, my family, mm -hmm. that I'm still here. Mm -hmm. But yes, that's displacement all, all around. But, but the, I mean, almost the second displacement is almost horrific when you have a modern situation where people who do bad for a living, like that's their thing. That's it, their business. It is. And the, the worst part that I can see for some reason, the, the most Wait, affected. Can, can, can you just, can you just explain to me or the audience, just to be clear, what does it mean when you say 80% of the countries ran by, let's just call them the bad guys. It means that they go into towns um, and especially places where people grow crops mm. and they start charging you a quota. They start telling, taking your land. And if you don't accept their terms, they will kill you. They will wow. hunt you down. They will chase you out of your land, which is one of the biggest problems today in Chiapas. Mm. The, with the Zapatista autonomous communities that, you know, they've been able to hold it down for 27 years now, but there's literally paramilitary groups at this point that they're doing this to people. And I mean, there's an idea like Mexico is not indigenous anymore, but 75% of the country is indigenous and they're the ones targeted, the people who either need the money or have the land and they will resource to violence to take it from you whether you want to or not. So in places like Guerrero, Hidalgo, uh, Michoacán, Guanajuato, people don't have an option. Either you grow what they want you to grow or they kill you or and wow. they will kill your family. They even kill your dog. Like it's. It's Spaniards. A all, it's Spaniards it's all a over genocide. It's, it's an ongoing genocide. So it, it's not like. Over here, where you have to worry about gang banging and different hoods and stuff like that, over there it's a whole different ballgame. It's kind of the same thing, but with cartels, you know, like the bad guys. Uh, it's they have their own, just like a gang has their their name, so do they, and they mark the territory. But I think what's worth, I mean, I've always said like Mexico and the U.S. are not that different. It's just mm -hmm. that the U.S. has done a much better job at hiding stuff. Mm -hmm. They cubran el sol con un dedo. In Mexico, it's just right on your face. Well, I just remember, I mean, the youngest memory I have, when when the first memory, when you mentioned Mexico, the first thing that pops into my head is, oh, that's the place where cops get money. Yeah, like, yes. Where cops, you can give cops money. And like, that's the first thing you think of, at least you what know, I think of. <laughs> every time I, I talk to my father, you know, he's, he's from <laughs> La Buena Michoacán. You know, he grew up there. You know, I think he came here when he was in his early 20s. Yeah. Every time I mention to him, hey, dad, I'm going to take a little trip to Mexico. What do you think he tells me? Why? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it hurts me a lot. It, it does. It hurts. Um, he says, he says, mijo, you're going to get killed out there. Yeah. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, is this what the propaganda teaches our elders right now? Or... You know, was it the trauma that my father faced when he was out there before he came over here? You know? Well, there's... I can't even go to Mexico City without my dad tripping. Wow. It's a dangerous place, though. Okay. It's a dangerous place. It's, let, let's, not, let's not try to say that it isn't. But everywhere is a dangerous place. I mean, you could... You can go to... You could be 
in East Los Angeles meet a racist cop that it just doesn't go your way? Well, I do have a couple of theas that would tell me, Miho, you know, if you run with the bad crowd, then it's a dangerous environment. But, you know, feel free to go and just, you know, stay, yeah, stay low key. Exactly. Exactly. Don't but go over that, there and all stay that out nonsense, there until two Like, in the why morning. do they even tell me that? that you know what I'm saying? Mm, I think, look. When people go to Mexico from the U.S., there's already the idea that you have money. Mm-hmm. People think people when they think about the U.S., they're thinking about the money conversion. Like, oh, you have ten dollars. That means that I have like so many pesos. Mm-hmm. And I mean, right now it's like twenty pesos. A dollar is twenty pesos in Mexico. But what they don't understand is that the cost of living here is so high. That we're poor. Just because we live here doesn't mean that we have a better life. Mm. We have to hustle all the time. We have to, I mean, there's families. I know in Orange County, for example, it takes one family with two children, $68,000 just to be able to afford an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment, $68,000. And that, and since I used to run a company, that's around, that's around $5,500 a month. Like you have to earn fifty five hundred. If you're making hourly, that's well over thirty dollars an hour, just you, to live off the basic necessities. Just to live in a small two bedroom apartment. Okay, but keep in mind that that's if you have a social security. That's if you yeah. have a legal status, right? right? Because I know families that are undocumented, and both parents work sometimes two to three jobs, and they're still struggling. Yeah, they're probably making like thirty grand with those three jobs. And no more time to spare and no no free time this is where i get so frustrated in this movement and these conversations of justice because i every time our people get left out of the conversation where they're not seeing the conditions that they're working on the trauma the stress the it's horrible and Honestly, to me, this is modern day slavery. People not even sometimes affording minimum wage or working with fear where you clock in and you are not you anymore. You belong to this company and they'll let you go home whenever they want. And sometimes they don't get breaks. Sometimes like between Raza, they're competing with each other to see who can produce more. And what they're doing is that they're making the environment, environment of work a lot more stressful. Well, it, it reminds me of the environment that you went to school in. Exactly. Because people are busting their ass to get their kid to school. You better be in the top 10. That's impossible. What if you're not into reading? What if you're into drawing? What if you're into math? What if you're into things that really don't interest you in that way? But if you have a high competition for one position, then you'll always, it's almost like pushing your gas on your car all the way down to the metal until it just doesn't run anymore. And, and the, the last one left is the winner. And the worst part about this is that society has, and this is all around the world. I don't think there's, colonization has touched every single corner of the world. Mm-hmm. It's like a degree, that little paper tells you now you're worth something. Now you're someone now. What you do and say is valuable. Like before you have that paper, you're not worthy. Of course not. And that's a shame because what's that telling us about music, poetry, Mm -hmm. art? Like those things are not worth only when they fit your standards. So it's colonization all around in everything. 
everything. And the truth is like knowledge is not limited to a classroom. Mm -hmm. Education is not limited to a degree or a career. It's what you make of it. The teachings, they're really all around us in every single little thing. That's well, I, I, you know, when I started my music career and we got into the prophecies of 2012, we didn't really understand what, what that meant. Like, what does it mean? It's kind of like what you're saying right now, where you're like, education isn't what they're saying it is, mm -hmm. right? Because education, I, I actually disagree a little with that because education is exactly what they're saying it is. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? Yes. Because they yes. built the structure to put you into it. Yes. Now, uh, yes. There's also an alternative to education, mm. which is information. Yes, I like that. That's Malcolm X. Mm. He didn't have no degree. Mm -hmm. He he just read books. Yes. There was no boundary. There was no square. There was no grade. There was no ten. There was no eight. There was just you in that book. And what and that's do you make kind of, of it? And that's kind of the approach I took when I when I um discovered my identity you know i was playing in a reggae band and i thought everyone was african not because that's what was taught to me it was just that that's the vibe i chose because not knowing better but then my friend tells me hey come to my house and uh and and watch this documentary on the maya so i go and i boom the first five minutes of that I'm, I'm almost in tears. My, my jaws dropped and I went, wait, that's me. Like, it was almost like seeing a reflection where you thought the reflection was poverty, dysfunction, alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Those are the results of colonization. But when you find your identity, when you look at yourself in the mirror and that mirror is so brilliant, it had precise intentions that were going to have a ramification to now, which brings me back to 2012. What was that? What was that? It was a shift. A shift in what? A shift in the earth, an actual physical shift in the earth, mm -hmm. which creates a vibration, which come up to our feet, which come into our body and hit our consciousness. Right. Yep. That's the shift, which is breaking colonial perspective. Yes. Because it's not about education. It's about information. Yes, I, I think I, you know, it doesn't matter how smart people thought that I was when I was growing up or my grades told. Unlearning, not learning, unlearning has taught me so much more than I could ever learn in a classroom. Right. And that's when I went within myself and finally, like you said, like I could look finally at myself and see the, the beauty, not because of me, but because of where I come from. Mm. The, the people before me. Mm. I realized this life is not about me. It's about all of us, and I'm just a small mm. little part of the contribution mm -hmm. to this moment in the in this life. It's not about one person, and that's another thing that we learn in in 
this colonial system that to be egocentric, that everything's about us and we take everything. Well, it's part of being human too, you know, part of no, duality. But that's a, no, but that's a good point because you could take it to the current situation now. We won't say the specifics of the current situation, right? But if someone isn't um, affected, right? And you're going, but if you don't do that, then you're gonna hurt me. That's ego. It is. Right, because what I say is if anyone is sick, I'm I'm gonna run through that door. I'm gonna bring herbs. I'm gonna bring bee pollen. I'm gonna bring spirulina. I'm gonna bring all the tools that my ancestors left me thousands and thousands of years ago. And I wanna say, okay, let's go. This is your shit, this is mine. And let's see if your grandfather was smart enough to engineer food that hit yeah. your cell at a bio level, because now it's, a war against grandfather medicines, right? Their ego, their monarchy, their elitism, or our communalism, our understanding that community is the only thing we have. And we are just one little small drop in that contribution. Right. Um, Eva, I have a question for you. Like, I noticed you, you mentioned to me, you, always, you would always question things. Right? I still do. <laughs> right. So, you know, the transition from being in Mexico and the U.S. and then just continuing to question things and and be against, quote unquote, authority or something like that. Um, when was the breaking point when you were like, look, I, I need to st stop questioning myself, but, you know, uh, speak up and practice on my self-expression. Right. And actually be behind a microphone and put yourself at risk to actually back up a big community that you felt like you needed to be a voice for like I, I i see that a lot of the events i've been to you're always behind the microphone right which is a great great tool to use to use your self-expression right so when was the breaking point where you're like look i'm just gonna stop questioning things and actually start being vocal about the situation i had there there have been a few breaking points in my life for starters, I've been, I've always been like this. I, I met a friend from Mexico who came to visit a couple years ago and she was telling me like, Yvette, you've always been like this. Like, you don't remember the first protest you organized in school? <laughs> and I'm like, really? Like, I didn't. But Mexico is very like that. There's protests every other day there. All the time. That's why I'm saying like, that's the epicenter for political movements. Mm. So one thing is I've never, like to be told what to do because that's what i grew up in so i've always been like you're not gonna tell me what to do you know i'm gonna do what my heart tells me to do i'm gonna speak up when i feel it's right um again growing up in violence and uh, surviving really because i had no childhood i was forced to grow up even when i was a kid poetry was an outlet and that was my way of expressing myself and I was so open about it. Like I said, I won a contest at a national level. Mm. Um, but then I came here and my voice, my voice was taken because I didn't speak the language, because they didn't think that I meet the standards. And when I was entering the school system, they actually put me back to algebra because I didn't speak the language, right? So for three months, I'm working so hard and translating everything December comes around, new semester starts, and I go back to the office and I ask them, 
can you put me back to my level? I can communicate. No, we put you in the system like this, so you have to go through this. Mm -hmm. And it broke me. I wasn't being challenged anymore. I was not, I, the school here was so easy. Like I lost interest in it and I lost myself. I lost my voice. I forgot the essence and the, like I stopped being authentic. I started being the person that I was told that I needed to be to fit in here in this country and this, you know, this new world to me. And I went with it. Then around 22 years old, I had my second child. And I became really sick. I've always been sick. I have an autoimmune disease disorder that throughout my life with the trauma has impacted my health in multiple ways that I've, after I had my second child, my immune system doesn't recognize the baby as part of me. So it starts attacking itself and trying to get rid of the baby. Um, after that, I was never the same. I was really sick for the, the last 10 years of my life have been a challenge. But we're really one of those times. I've been close to dying six times. Wow. That I can tell you that I've seen and felt that and you know, I was like, just take me, like, take this pain, take, uh, um, I left in pain, I live in pain. Mm -hmm. um, but one of those times, I, in 2015, I had a seizure while driving, and I didn't know that I had epilepsy yet. I was arrested because the police thought that I was withdrawing from drugs, hardcore drugs, like heroin or meth. And they took me to jail and left me seizing all night. Then I get out and the next day, I, like I'm still seizing throughout the entire night at the police station. The next day I'm thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Like, am I going crazy? I go to the hospital. They tell me, oh, there's nothing wrong. You just have tendonitis. Give me steroids and send me back home. Um, then I really feel like I'm losing my mind. At that moment, I convinced myself my children will be better off without me and that I was just a burden and I tried to commit suicide. During the time that I was dying, my baby woke up in the middle of the night and started dancing and just doing things to try to keep me awake. It was almost like he knew that I was dying. And the medication is already working. Like, I'm already passing out. I feel like I'm going to throw up. And in that moment, when I see his little face, like, right in front of me in his eyes, it's like, Mommy, don't fall asleep. I regret it. What I'm trying to kill myself so fast that I promised myself if I make it, I'm gonna dedicate my life to make sure that this world becomes a better place, not only for my children, but for all children. So I woke up in the hospital days later, and that's when I became like so grateful for this life. That not only that gave me the strength to fight my own case, for years I fought that case for three years, 
but in the courts, I started meeting people that didn't even know they, they, they could ask for a translator. So the path itself kind of took me there. So while I was fighting for myself, that's when I started fighting for people. I started doing the work of advocating, uh, making sure my people's rights are protected and exer exercised properly. But it was not until George Floyd was killed that I was like, fuck this, you know? Like, that really sparked that part of me that I lost when I came here, that was taken from me. And at that moment, like, I didn't care about my accent. I didn't care if I was educated or if I sounded educated. I just knew that I had to speak up because it was not only my experience or my families and all the pain that we have gone through. I take the experiences that people share with me as part of my life. I never forget them. And so when I'm fighting, I'm not only... I try not to speak for anyone. I think that everyone has to tell their own story, but at the same time, I'm not speaking only for myself. I'm not, I'm not it's not about me. It's the message. I'm just a messenger. Mm. But wow, that is, but you're a, quite honestly, one of the best responses I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's people is it's people's adversity will makes them who they are. You know, it, you know, usually people who are, special in that way went through a lot and that was her breaking point right there i had enough yeah. enough is enough yeah. wow you know that's that's pretty intense i remember one time when it, it kind of reminds me of the stories when because my mom used to help uh i know what it was like to live in the oc because i lived there for a little bit and i always thought wow it's weird how our house we have to live with other families because that's the way you survive over there yes. if you live with other families. And um, man, it just it just brought me back. Like you you talking about, you know, living. Oh, so since we lived in, in Santa Ana, we used to go to Tijuana quite a bit. Like my mom used to go there. I didn't know why I was a little kid. I just remember her going, oh, mijo, we're going to Tijuana. And then we drive up to the Cerros where all the shanty, the, that I always thought, why is this house made of a sign? Like, I don't know why, <laughs> why does it have a Pepsi sign right here? Yeah. And I was just a kid and my mom was helping out this family. Mm. And um, anyways, she, my mom left for like a couple of days and me and my sister were there. And I remember they had their restroom outside. It was very third world. Like yeah. that, that was, I, if I ever had an experience, it changed my life forever because I was nine years old and, uh, or nine or 10. And I told my homie who I would go visit there. We used to go and I used to have $5. So I was like, well, I was I'm balling. <laughs> yeah, we were buying sodas for all the little kids and they would all be happy. Yeah. And then one time, you know, I was like, all right, I'm here. I have $5. Let's go. Come on. We're going to go. And he's like, I, I can't go. And I was like, what? So what do you mean? Ah, you're playing. Come on, let's go. He's on. Like, no, dude, I, I got to go work. Yeah. He was like younger than I was. Yeah. No. And he was like, really? I got to go work. And he fucking drank some coffee like an adult and went and begged people at a market to unload the vegetables. And he'd come back with just enough money to buy beans and tortillas. Yeah. And That's and this dude was 10 this guy had the responsibility to feed his family 
at 10 years old? You know, I got my first job when I was eight. And it wasn't because I was forced to, but I knew the struggle. I was paying attention and I did it. So I will not ask my parents for anything, but at the same time, like I could provide something. And that's always been the spirit. And even though today I'm so fortunate and I see this as a luxury and a privilege to not have to work because my husband is the head of the household Mm -hmm. and he takes good, good care of us. And thank goodness that he has worked so hard and, you know, kind of be able to provide for us. And I know that I can probably make an income charging families, but I'm not going to do that. Mm. Honestly, I I cannot ask my people to pay me for what I do. Mm. When It's not fair that someone from the community has to do this work, but it's not fair that I will make money out of it. Mm. So the work that I've been doing for six years now, I've never, never taken one single penny from the community. And I hope, basically, basically. So it's all pro bono, right? Yes. Wow. Yes. Um, And, you know, I I love how big hearted our community always is. I mean, it's it's just, you know, just talking about this, I'm I'm thinking back, you know, and I'm on my own healing journey with my mom and, you know, what I thought was, oh, mom, my mom was screwed up. She left me there. She was actually helping people, you know, cross the border or bring medicine to sick people. And, and um, like, she was the delivery person. So people from the U.S. would ask her, since she had a green card, she would go back and forth to take stuff to TJ mm-hmm. because they couldn't afford anything there. Yep. You know, so whatever it was, however they piecemealed their existence, my mom was a part of it. And so I got to really, as a young kid, really understand poverty because I thought I was poor. I used to hate my mom. Oh, my, we're so poor, blah, blah, blah. And I used to resent her yes, for being I, poor. And then I went, whoa, this guy's really poor. <laughs> I mean, this guy has to go work. I'm not that poor. I mean, I get to go to school and, yeah, I don't get to go with fancy clothes, but I get to go to school and not worry about I have to bring back tortillas and beans so my my little brothers can eat. That's insanely colonist. (laughs) That's where the colonizer designs. But here's, here's what I'm saying. Our people were very brilliant individuals. Oh my God. They were so profound that I, I, I get sometimes frustrated when I don't see how they can't put the piece together because when our grandfathers came in the 30s to Los Angeles, that's when my grandfather came here, um, they had to figure out a way. Okay. They had to go, oh, do you know how to build this building? And they had to say, yeah, and then figure it out. Like, yes. oh, yeah, oh, what the hell is this? Okay, cool, I know how to fix it. And they just did it. I, I've told this story on this podcast before when my grandfather bought a car that didn't, the, the white man told him, hey, this is a great car. The engine doesn't work, though. That's the only thing. And so my, my grandfather figured it out, though. Wow. He wow. figured it out with no mechanic training, none of it. He just took it all apart, said, oh, this part's broken. <laughs> then wow. put it back, put it back together and drove that. With none of those books that you would buy at Pet Boys to see how the car is. Absolutely not. And or YouTube. As, <laughs> as, he, as, as, I seen him, as I've seen him growing up, and this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about his ingenuity. I'm talking about his relentlessness to say, you know what? I don't need your, I, I, he used to really, really, really be on my mom and anyone else and her, all the grandchildren to go to school. 
because he couldn't go because he didn't have an opportunity to go right there we go again with that you know you're not even smart enough which is kind of we as a people from turtle island have to realize we're not these poor low class we come from a brilliant society where if my grandfather could figure out how to work an engine put it all take it all apart and put it all back together and fix it then we can fix our situation by being intelligent by being wise and by maybe sometimes having a contribution come to us because that's the way i feel about armando i go armando look dude if we can ask all the artists to play our event we got to give them something whatever it is let's give them something hundred dollars fifty dollars seventy dollars our humility sometimes they, they they train us to be so humble that we can't even hum help ourselves then the only one that can help us is them who is them people in power mm, los arriba. that's it it's not a particular race country it's people in power yes so we're humble though and we're like no no and I don't like to criticize and I'm not coming from that point, but work deserves compensation and that compensation, how you use the compensation is up to you. Yes. And, you know, I just had this conversation with someone from the community who asked me, like, no says mensa, like, take, take what, if they offer you money, take it. Um, my way of compensation is really seeing the change in these families, how it betters their life. Absolutely. Their blessings. Their blessings really, just like when someone, you know, words are so powerful. Mm. They carry a frequency. They carry intention. So when someone from the community is blessing me because I did something for them from my heart, my heart takes that. Mm. That's, to me, I cannot put a price or value to that. Absolutely. And I trust that at one point, you know, if I'm going to make money out But of you have this. To, in, my, in my opinion, you have to allow people to want to help your journey. Yes. You know, because yes. I mean, as, as luxurious as it is and as beautiful as it is that a man is going, hey, you know, I'm going to take care of all my family and you have the opportunity to do something. Um, what I'm saying is that sometimes people that we, We, this is one thing that I noticed. Okay, I was at a, 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 a show, right? During my early El Vu years. And I was already wealthy because I was working with autistic kids. So um, making money off of my merchandise wasn't something I was very interested in, right? So this guy comes to the booth. He's like, oh, I want all the shirts, but, uh, you know, how much are they? And I was like, you know, I wanted to be professional. So I said, oh, $15. They're $15. And then he's all... Oh, man. Yeah, maybe not. And then goes to the bar and spends $70 oh my God. on like four drinks. And I'm like feeling bad that I overcharged him. And then he goes and turns around and just like waste. That's what I'm saying. Yes. It's like they'll, they'll go like, so that's why I'm saying when, when, when I ask people to buy my merchandise, it's a, at a fixed rate because I know how much time I put into it. I know what it's worth. And anything that anyone does is worth something. Absolutely. And I, I know that you you do it out of good feeling. But how much more powerful will it be if they go, hey man, here. You know what the you know what the elders do? You know what you should do? 
This is my suggestion. Because I want to see you uh, No, I want to hear. I want to hear it. They go, put it in a red cloth. Just mm. give it to me. Mm. Put it in a red cloth. Whatever it is, $5, $10, $20, $5,000. Who cares? You're not asking. Just put it in a red cloth for me. And whatever it is, I'll be happy and thankful that you gave it to me. That's what the elder said. You know, I, I think... Uh, so I, I've always had this idea that one day I'm going to work on my business, you know, and that when I do that, like, I'm going to get back the gift that I've put out in Absolutely. the world. Um, but here's, maybe this is the catch. When I'm helping people, I'm learning. Mm. Um, when, so 2019, I want to say, 2020, kind of like when the movement, this new uprising started, I was in school to become a lawyer and I was taking journalism classes. Mm. And at the same time, I learned that California is one of the only few states where you can become a lawyer without paying for law school. Mm. So if you become an apprentice with a judge, with a lawyer, or do the work, you can, if you take the bar exam and you pass, you can become a lawyer. There's mm. two bar exams, the baby and the, the big one. Mm. Um, that's kind of what I'm getting out of the advocacy work. Good. I'm learning. And, you know, like I can help. So there's some, a focus. Absolutely. I still struggle with this because I don't know if I'm going to. That's the question about education. You know, now I'm seeing something very different. Mm. And I don't, I feel like in school, you put yourself in a little box. Like if you become a doctor, you're a surgeon, a heart surgeon, then you're limited to only learning that. Mm -hmm. If you become a real estate lawyer, you're limited to only learning that. You have to go and get another proof that you are like, um, authorized or certified to do this work and I don't want to put myself in a box so I do that's an inner struggle with myself what am I going to do with my education am I going to go the within the system or I'm going to continue to work with my people and see where that takes me so that's something that I'm still struggling with today but again I know I'm not only giving, I'm also taking. Mm. When someone shares with me their problems and I figure it out and I read the law and I need the, uh, to learn their rights and how to exercise them and how to protect them, I'm learning. And I'm learning something that, you know, usually people have to pay a lot of money mm -hmm. to learn. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting something out of it in that sense. Well, that, you know? just, that just reminds me that you're not selling out. You just yeah. run with your gut, right, Zero? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. And, and she's applying her talents. You know that you know you got to utilize. Not, not everybody knows how to look up a case, or it's it's not easy to be a paralegal. That sounds like paralegal work. And I I I guess the difference between the paralegals and what I do is the paralegals work for the lawyers. Mm. I work for the people. Yeah. So I've really just taken like their no, model. but I'm talking about like, yes, like, like the it, amount of research because yes, people think that reading. lawyer lawyers read all that. It's oh, not the no. lawyers; it's mm -hmm. the paralegal that reads all yes. the stuff and briefs the lawyer, and the lawyer yep. has strategies, or maybe he's familiar with that case, and if it if he finds enough information for it, then he'll doubt. Oh, let me read the case, and then I, they build I the case. Right. Yes, if, especially if there's money involved. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's not that, that I'm a lawyer. Every I don't lawyer know. That. I don't know how. I, I, I just automatically think that, you know, this is the way this country works. It's very easy to see that the lawyer went to school, got a degree. He paid for it. So he hires, let's call them helpers, you know, to do all of the work. 
It's very colonist. It's the same thing. It's the same structure. So that's why you struggle with, how am I going to go to school? Because that's all they're teaching you is this structure, the structure of hierarchy, the structure of, you know, follow my rules. Um, Yeah, we're going to teach you about the reality of it, but you can only use this part because this is the only part that applies to what we do. Yeah. And And that's false. That's not even education. That's not even... That's not even free will. It's an indoctrination. If you really think about it, it's not even free will because you're going, you're investing all that. Like I struggle with my partner and I go like, she's all, I I need to be a midwife. I need to have a certificate. I need to be able to sign the certificate. And I'm like, I I could see that. That's a beautiful thing. Imagine if you could be able to be the person that signs a certificate to your grandchildren. Wow. Right. That's a powerful moment. Who am I to say, Hey, that's not worth anything. But I have a problem with you having to go to bend to a system that really doesn't care whether you just got to follow my rules, right? Yes. Just follow my rules. And this is why you go to school. So you can follow my rules. If you can't follow my rules, well, then you're a radical or you're not worth anything. Yeah. Right. So that that's the problem I have with the dilemma that you have about yes. choosing. Oh, well, should I? Everybody said this. My uncle, my uncle from the Sailage, I love him to death, but he's all, fight the system from within. Hmm, I don't think so. You can't fight. They're not even going to let you in if they know that you're going to fight the system. They're never going to let you in. Who wants to tell the story? Who is going to, who on their side is going to go, yeah, well, it was, they're trying to do it right now. Like a lot of white people are going like, they're really questioning themselves about like the history of America. That's where we're at. Even if you look on CNN and Fox radio they're gonna they're, they're all going you know that you know we pulled teeny um we pulled um college students at this university and they're all saying well did you know how america raped the natives do you know how they built with slaves and now it's starting to hit their face because the mainstream media goes no look we eat happy we eat hamburgers and hot dogs and everything's cool and fourth of july and you know watch blah, the blah, kardashians blah. exactly <laughs> consume 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 yes right now they're hitting a brick wall because their consumerism society is done because it's run by, you could see the structure very clearly, the structure of white supremacy, the structure of elitism, and the structure of religious control. Yes. And I'll say it, and I can say it, because I'm a genocide survivor. And I'm not afraid of it. What it means to be a genocide survivor is to go through their torture, their pain, their rape, and still somehow, some way, through the blood of my grandmother, gave me a message to never forget who I was. And who is that? I don't know. But I know the person that she was connected to the earth, loved nopales, loved making tamales, Love making pozole, love making atole. And then, I re- yeah. And then you read in the books, and they're like, the ancient Maya drink atole. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> whoa, you know, one and one. Yes. Yeah. You know, I don't know if we can fight the system from within. I think we just have to build our own system. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. That's Thank it. you. Just I- build your own system, your own community. You don't have to be. Remember, this is a consumer society, so you don't have to buy anything. So when people tell you, oh, you're, you're going to be a part of the problem, 
you know, supposedly not vaccinated. Oh, well, then you can't go to fucking Ralph's. Okay, well, then I won't go to fucking Ralph's. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't go to any grocery stores. Well, then I'll go to fucking, um, uh, what do they call them? Farmer markets then. I, I don't care what you're saying. If, oh, you can't go to farmers. Well, then I'll fucking grow my own food. Yes. It just has to come to that point where we're questioning colonization. Colonization is a fence and you're the sheep inside that fence. That's colonization. Well, Native Tennessee's just left a great comment. He says, I appreciate this episode a lot. For a long time, I felt down on myself for the same reason of the thought of being a brown, uneducated man, thinking of myself as less than a person. That has been a piece of paper, but through colonization and my peers, I've realized I'm worth more than that. But I also know that in this society, it is something we require to help our people. Right. He's talking about the degree, right? Yeah. Great yeah. comment, Native Tennessees. I mean, we love you. I, 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 yes. I, I truly believe it. It, it. If you guys want to go through that, that's it's just like it's kind of like if you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. There's no there's no argument on not to. The argument is when you force someone to that's something different because. So education is the same way. Yes. Hey, you want to go down that road? I mean, uh, we had the educators the other day, the other time. Right. And I told them, like, man, how much racism did you face? You know, how much compromise did you have? How much, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, whoa, you start to realize, whoa, fuck, I was in this little box. You know, they made me they made me go through that. They made me say these things. It's not like you can go put a charter school and go, look, we're only going to speak now what? And we're going to put our focus on um, understanding flora and fauna and um, understanding time. And then then they're going to go, but where's George Washington's lesson? Where's Christopher Columbus's lesson? It's like, see, you have to follow their curriculum. You know, so that's where we have to try to start questioning is how free are we? I think democracy has been sold with the idea that it gives you freedom when in reality it puts limits to the freedom. It's not, we don't live in an autonomous society. Can I, can I add something to that though? Of course. It does. It's not that it, puts limits to the freedom it puts limits to living in their society Mm. you know what i mean because we can live outside of that and build our own house and be by a river and if you can't find me i'm not even there really in reality each one of us from the city could go i'm gonna go as far as i can and if they catch me once and they pull me back over here kind of like you can't live in the wilderness alone like you're too stupid to live in the wilderness yeah. alone. And that's not true. Absolutely not. Look what our ancestors built. That's what yeah. I'm trying to say, Yvette, Armando, is that we have the ingenuity. We have the creativity to create our own system within a system. We have the Zapatistas as example. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, talking about the Zapatista, you know, um, prior to this episode, I, I was telling you guys that the first time I ever heard of that term was on an El Vu record when I was a teenager, like preteen. I'm talking 16, 15 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed that you have that on your profile. And I know, you know, Zero was speaking about the Zapatista movement forever throughout his whole career. Can you guys, you know, give us a quick breakdown on, on, on what that is for people that are not familiar? I remember, oh man, it was 94. Mm-hmm. I was in my bed. Um, we were we were still kind of just forming Quinto Sol. So I think it was after practice. I was just sleeping. I just remember at midnight, boom, the news hits. And it's like, 
uprising in Mexico. And it says, as soon as that the newscaster said that, my heart started beating really fast. Like, what the fuck? Mexico? What, what's going on in Mexico? And then, boom, the whole stories of, you know, the Indian, the, the inhabitants of Chiapas, right? Um, going into the jungle for a certain amount of years, training with Subcomandante Marcos and, and launching a, a multimedia war that had dramatic um, emphasis because they had guns, mm-hmm. right? Like these poor Indians are uprising in Mexico, but the uprising, the guns were just so that cameras would go to Chiapas and start writing about like, what's going on over here, you know? And so a brilliant strategy. It was, it was really brilliant to see that whole movement led by um, indigenous elders because that's really where the meat and potatoes was. Yes. Was in... With the community. Ramona. Not, yes. With Comandante Ramona. Moises. Moises. Um, really, well, the bringers of the new shift, the 2012 shift, they were the elders of that shift. That's why I felt it so strong in 94 when that newscaster said that. I was like, something's changing. What's, what's changing? What is it? And then, boom, you go into it and you start seeing the elders and all this stuff starts to come at you. And, boom, the career happens like what the says el vu. But that's my story. What's your story? So at the time, I must have been five or six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Salinas de Gortari leaving the Mexican government and out of nowhere, the value of the, the peso dropped, like I think three zeros. So I remember holding like a coin, I think it might've been like a thousand pesos. And now my mom was explaining to me like, oh, you, you see this zeros? Like she covered them up with a finger and she's like, no, this is only worth one peso. Wow. And I was a little kid. I was just like so blown away. I was like, what? Like, you mean that I cannot buy this much candy anymore? (laughs) You know, that was my first thing. Um, Then I must have been 13 years old when I kept hearing the word like uh, about the uprising and, uh, you know, like, by this is like already 2000 maybe. Mm. Um, That's like uh, about... Eight, no, six years into it, right? Yes. And they were still trying to negotiate and abandon weapons and that stuff. And I just remember looking at them and and thinking, learning about their struggle, what they were fighting for, and thinking like, holy crap, like this is my family. This is my grandfather. Like these people that I'm seeing, there is the history of my family. Mm. And that was the first time that I identified as a Zapatista. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I came from. But I recognize myself and my family and those people and that's why i why i identified with that mm. what really happened is that in 1994 mexico the the government signed the nafta treaty with the us and canada and like every other treaty that has been signed before they were leaving the campesinos the farmers out of the conversation and they were making profit out of them mm. um so instead of Mexico growing crops and living from, from their own land, 
Now they were bringing crops from the U.S. and other countries to Mexico, mm -hmm. paying for something that you can do at home right. that you've done all your life, that you've survived with, and now they're taking it from you. Right. And on top of that, they want to take your land. Mm. So before this happened, uh, in Mexico, there were the Fuerzas de Liberación Nacional, mm -hmm. FLN, and about 80 other groups of communist uh, ideology throughout the country, which the government made sure to exterminate. And a lot of this takes me back to 1968 in Tlatelolco with the massacre. What they were really against were like the ideology, mm -hmm. the, you know, the people trying to fight and break themselves free from the state. Mm -hmm. So 1994 happens and they say, ya basta. Nunca más un México sin nosotros. And they declare war against the Mexican state. What we don't know is that they had already been training for 10 years and mm -hmm. they went from north to south talking to the most affected communities on what they needed and learned. Mm -hmm. When the Fuerzas de Liberación Nacional goes to Chiapas, they're thinking like, oh, we're going to go teach them, we're going to go free them. And it didn't happen like that. It was really the indigenous communities teaching them the old ways to survive. And that's how the EZLN was formed. But it was really led by the indigenous community and the ancient wisdom, not communism, not subcomandante Marcos, Absolutely. not anyone else. They, ELN is the army, the fighters, so the people don't have to fight. Absolutely. Armando, do you mind pulling up um, when subcomandante, you can look it up on YouTube, um, Zapatistas go to Mexico City. That was a humongous event. And I want to get people in our audience to see what the energy was like at the Socalo. Um, oh and, my God. and to see how important this movement was for not only Mexico, um, you just put um, Zapatistas go to Mexico City. I'm sure that. There is one speech, uh, hasta morir si es preciso. I'm not sure if that's the one from Mexico City, but that's that's another powerful. So this, what, what year, do you remember what year they went in, Yvette? I think it might have been late 1980, no, 1990s. Um, I'm not... Sure. You know when Marcos yeah. went to the Socalo, right? Yes. He, he went to the Socalo and he did this like incredible speech. I but, think that's the uh, Asta Morisi es preciso. I just don't remember like the precise year, but it might have been 1990, late 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh -huh. it started in 94. So I think it was 98? like in 98. I think yeah. it might have been 98. Because they did a whole, didn't he like run for president or, or something? It wasn't him. They put, they. Oh, they put an official, right? Yes. Uh, Marichuy. Exactly. So they, they had put their own candidate into Mexico City, uh, Mexico City's election. And <clears throat> man, it was such a powerful, energetic scene. Um, when they came to Mexico City and the Socalo, and like like Yvette was saying, you know, Mexico City, if if it's about the people, if it's for the people, the people are going to show up. Oh, and there's always encampments outside the El Palacio Nacional. Look the, look up the speech that she's talking about, Armando. Um, what what is it called? Hasta morir si es preciso. 
And I, I encourage everyone who speaks Spanish speaking or, you know, who has the patience to find the videos of Subcomandantes Marcos speeches. I actually met him. Sí. I have no idea how to spell that. Oh. I, I, I can do it. Yeah, or I can. Do you want me to spell it? No, no. Can you go, ahead and, oh. go ahead and type it in the computer. Oh, sorry, Mondo. I thought you spoke Spanish, bro. <laughs> it's all good. We're going to pull this up. We're gonna... Español, pero no puedo hacer nada en la computadora. Dude, you're like me. You're like me, dude, because they ask me the same thing, dude. And I'm like, oh. But I, I, I encourage people from LA Natives to, to go back a few, a few decades and really study the Zapatista movement because it was a very important movement. That movement brought organizations. It brought, it brought, um, it brought a really intelligent, articulate individual by the name of Su Comandante Marcos to write brilliant, brilliant speeches by analyzing the perspective of the elders, right? That's what I took it. The way I took it was that he would analyze and digest the information that he was learning in the circles that he was that he was digesting from these very wise individuals and I mean created a movement that to this day he walked away from. Well, that's the reason why he died, you know? Yeah. He died? Not well, physically. Oh, I'll, I'll see, get I into see, it I in see, a second. I see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Because I never met somebody with that much charisma, with that much power, and then humility just kind of just hum humbly just go, okay, I'm done here. Yes. This is time for me to go. Like me staying here longer is going to hurt this. Yes. Yes. I'll, I'll explain that in, in a second. Conquistar estas tierras. La escuché cuando nuestros pueblos, nuestros hombres, mujeres, niños y ancianos decidieron alzarse en armas contra el supremo gobierno. Hace nueve meses, un poco más, lanzamos la sexta declaración de la selva lacandona. Nos comprometimos hacer un esfuerzo por unir todas las resistencias and is, it, is this the guy you guys are talking about? Yes. Wow. En el México de abajo y de la izquierda se estaban levantando contra la voracidad de los gobiernos y los poderosos que los mandan. Como primera parte decidimos recorrer toda la República Mexicana y hemos escuchado esta misma palabra esta misma frase en voz de otros pueblos indios, de campesinos, de obreros, de estudiantes, de mujeres, de jóvenes, de maestros, de ancianos, de pequeños comerciantes, hasta morir si es preciso. Ellos, ellas, nosotros. Nosotras, la otra campaña, hemos decidido unir nuestras luchas no para cambiar un gobierno, sino para derrocarlo. No para pedirle a los ricos, sino para sacarlos de este país. El que está allá va a salir y el que está allá también y también el que está allá. This is. Can we pause that real sec for a second? Van a salir. 
los vamos a derrocar. Y los you gotta understand, this is a mestizo, quote unquote, non, I mean, this is pretty much a poor man telling the government that you're corrupt and with the force of the people, we're going to take you out of these offices. Yes. With the force of the people. Wow. And that we are willing to die fighting. That's why it says, hasta morir si es preciso, until yeah. death, if we have to die. What, what powerful speeches. Those are powerful speeches that everyone should study. Everyone should study those speeches and put them in their heart because they were said with the guidance of the abuelos. You exactly. Know. That's why Zapatismo speaks to me at every level because it's not made up. You know, it was not subcomandante. It's not coming from what one single person or system wants to do. It's the will of the people with ancient wisdom. It's ancient teachings. It's indigenous way of life. Absolutely. And Zapatismo is a way of life. It's, you know, I... It is definitely something that you need to, um, you need to study because it helps you along the road of this indigeneity road that you're trying to find because you have to find inspiration from our sitting bull. Who is our modern day sitting bull? Who is our modern day um, Geronimo? Who are the people that are making eloquent speeches that, that are humbly for the people? Really, you know, and that movement was powerful. And it, I remember because when 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 that when that whole uh, Zapatista movement happened, a lot of Chicanos from East L.A. went down there and they're like, we want to help. We want to be a part of. And they're like, you, what you guys need to do is sit in a group over here and then go back to your community exactly. and do your work over there because we got it over here. We got our own community. And when I when I heard that, I was like, wow, what a powerful movement. I, like we're gonna teach you, we'll give you all the booklets, we'll give you the organizational structure, but you gotta go take that over there. Don't we don't need help over here? You know, when we are having <coughs> the assembleas and in the, the the network that I'm part of with the Zapatistas, it's in this part of the wall. Mm. So Sexta Gritas del Norte, right? And I I'm around people that went to Chiapas when that happened. Mm. And you know, I I didn't get the chance to go to the Zapatista communities growing up. Um, you know, I haven't been able to go in recent years because of my health and just how things started happening. Um, but to be able to learn and sit down with people like this, it's amazing. It's mm. such a beautiful gift. Mm. And to be part of this assembly, I, you know, I never dreamt in my entire life, in my wildest dreams, that I will come to the U.S., to become part of the Zapatista Asamblea, mm. you know? Um, but one of the, th I always tell them like, sometimes I think the youth here in uh, California thinks that they're gonna see Subcomandante mm. riding a horse <laughs> with his rifle and his pipe and a whole right. bunch of Zapatistas behind him like ready to get down. And I have I have a story about him. Please yeah. share. No, but go on, go on with your thought though first. Um, the thing about Zapatismo, and, and this is very explicit, el Zapatismo no se exporta. You cannot export Zapatismo. You can take the teachings. Mm. You can take the, the concept, the principles, and adapt them to your community because each, each community has their 
own needs. Mm -hmm. Just like your unique, irreplaceable individual, that's how our communities are, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to pay attention to the needs of the community we are part of and apply zapatismo, mm -hmm. how it fits to our collective good. Mm -hmm. Not yours, not mine, collectively. Mm -hmm. Collective consensus. Mm -hmm. And that's the way of the abuelos, you know, the, the elders, mm -hmm. that it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not imposing, it's mm -hmm. about proposing. Mm -hmm. And I mean... It's about contributing. Yes. And to contributing. cargo, like in Zapatismo, everyone has a cargo, a charge. Right. And it's not based on your degree, it's not based on the, the model that we've been imposed, it's what you are good at. Mm -hmm. It's... You might be a doctor, but if you're a better teacher, then the community is going to give you that cargo to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And it's not whether you want to or not. It's your community service to the community. Mm -hmm. So it's an honor to have a cargo in mm -hmm. your community. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm not too versed on, on exactly. I was very inspired by Marcos, Marcos' speech in terms of... Um, implying it or imposing it into my my poetry or my work my sampling whatever it is that that it was i was just really inspired by that zapatista movement him individually i remember um i believe it was like 2000 i don't remember early 2000s um they were the uh we were working with an organization called self help graphics and self help graphics they the Zapatistas, there were there was a few people that went and studied with the Zapatistas, so they wow. had connection in that way, and so they're like, uh, Marcos wants to come to Tijuana. Where could we, where could we stop? You know, where where is that? Where could, and so there was this. We were um, a lot of the friends that that I know were connected with um, Tijuana. No. Oh my God, I love them. Yeah, and. Um, they knew a theater in Tijuana that didn't have a roof that people would either rent out or um, throw concerts there. Mm. And so they decided that that would be the place where he would come. And wow. so, boom, he comes in this like bus and everybody's all like, oh, there he is, there he no is. Caballo, no yeah, horse, no horse, no horse, the bus. bus. <laughs> and he was really short, like he wasn't very tall at all. And I was, you know. I didn't take a picture with him because I felt like, oh, what was, that's a cheesy kind of like, you know, groupie. You know, I didn't want to do that. But I was honored just to meet him. Yes. I was like, wow, this is the guy that wrote that speech that I really, really just, I felt like was the most intellectual. It, it, it actually, him, Russell Memes, John Trudell really taught me how to articulate myself. Wow. How do I communicate with people? Those were the autistic nonverbals. Wow. They taught me how to communicate with humans by looking at them, by certain having certain tones and and just certain things. So I like to think that the reason I'm able to articulate myself so clearly is because of these individuals. The autistic community that was nonverbal, but these great masters of words, Supermanante Marcos, John Trudell. Russell Memes. Wow. I mean, these are my heroes. These they, are my... They're the teachers, yeah. you know? And one thing about Subcomandante, oh my God, he's so poetic. Mm -hmm. He speaks to you in a way that it goes to your heart. Mm -hmm. Like you feel that. Mm -hmm. Before you can process things with your brain, your heart is already like exploding with mm -hmm. all this. 
information and feelings. And I think trauma is so powerful that it has the power to alternate the, the DNA sequence mm. to a molecular level. Mm. But that's the power of speeches like this. If mm. you can, if trauma can do that to you, then love can do that to you. Undo right. that pain, that trauma. And that's what speaks to me. And uh, part of the what Subcomandante Marcos decided to kind of give up and die, it's because he kind of noticed people making the movement about him. Like the substance, the essence of the movement it, itself and the community was getting lost because he became like the figure mm. when he was only the spokesperson. Mm -hmm. So at the time there was a teacher, Galeano, who died in a horrible manner. I think he might have been tortured as well. So he gave, Marcos died so Galeano can live. Mm. And he gave up the name Marcos and became Galeano. So that was the death. He felt like Marcos needed to die so the essence of the movement can continue, but also he can give life to Galeano. Mm. And uh, yeah, so now we have Subcomandante Galeano. Wow. But that's how it evolves. And it keeps yes. moving. I think that that was that's humility you to go and say, hey, you know what? I I I mean, I guess it's hard to leave that position where people admire your words and and you you are being effective, you know? Cuz the one thing that I loved about Sukamanata Marcos is when he talked about poverty, I understood what he meant because I used to go to Tijuana. Mm -hmm. And when I used to see, you know, two-year-old kids with, with gum um, boxes trying to sell you gum just so that they could get, go right away and run and give it to their mom. And, you know, the, maybe that mom, there's an oppressive father who comes and just takes that money and lets them kind of, you know, so they're working there. And when, when I heard Somco Mandate's speeches, and when he was talking about poverty and describing poverty, maybe not exactly how I just described it, but he was describing the poverty I was seeing. Yes. And how that needed to end. I wanted to be in that path. I wanted to be in that road. I didn't want to be in the road that ignored that. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the two things that I like to do within myself, right? Like when I'm asking things i have two questions why and who or how it's either who or how where is this coming from and who taught me or who how did i learn this and uh, you know the way that we look at poverty in mexico it's i think people don't realize what they have the how rich we are in terms of culture wisdom knowledge but even the resources we have around us. If it was not for the indigenous people, for los pueblos indígenas, this world probably will not exist anymore. Right. It's been their, their fight, their disrespect for life all around us and living balance with nature, with Pachamama, Tonatzin, to protect her and be willing to die if you have to to protect that because you get what you give right so when you take care of the land the land provides for you mm -hmm. 
And that's something that has been completely taken out of all of us, you know, that has been taken from us to learn to live in a, everything superficial, everything. Wealth is measured by material, mm -hmm. not by wisdom, not by resources, not by any of that. And it's such a shame because I, I think our people have forgotten who we are, that they, they think that they have nothing. Mm -hmm. when they have everything mm -hmm. well we have a lot of experience and i know a lot of people grew I, I can only speak for the um the kids i grew up around you know and not everyone had the experience of oh i'm going to mexico this year you know <laughs> i'm gonna go and i i had an opportunity to go to mexico one year in my teens and it was probably one of the most profound kind of moments in my life i went to san luis potosi Wow, it's and, wow. And uh, I remember it distinctively because it was in a, I think, a high desert, and there was turtles. Turtles were walking like they would walk mm -hmm. on the road, on the dirt road. Yeah. And I remember going to the ranch, and how everybody would go to the corner store because that's the only place that had a TV and light. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other yep. places didn't have light. It was all. But during the daytime, I I noticed how how neatly the fences were made, how simple the dirt dwellings that, that my family had made they weren't they weren't like fancy but they were comfortable they were like oh wow it's nice and cool in here and yes. you know you're in a high desert but the profound moment i had when i went to mexico and and observing indigenous my indigenous side of of my family is when i was walking at night and it was we had to go to another house because we wanted to visit someone during the nighttime and I and I, I just walked out of the 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 house that we were in and over there there's no night light mm -hmm. just so the moon just and it was I I looked up and I'm and I went and I ducked my head because all I saw were stars and wow. it felt like they were eye level like I felt like a layer of stars see a layer of stars it was just like a bunch of bubbles like of light in a really clear path like it it almost like was like the milky way went down wow and like i was like i and it felt like you could just walk through the in between the stars it was such an impactful moment i got scared like wow. i didn't realize like whoa what is what is this well that's not the world that you know yeah you get me yeah. um and that's the world that we come from is what i'm trying to yes point out. this is the foundation of the Zapatista movement yes. is to reconnect with the land, respect it enough to organize your community, to take care of it, to take care of each other. Yes. No movement is perfect. So don't expect it to be a bed of roses, but know that we have a history of fighting for our rights ever since they came here. Just like uh, Uncle Masatin said, you know, we thought it was, <laughs> darkness but there was always been a light on it was us it was our it was our will to follow that light and try to find what that is and it and it's many many points of it zapatismo is one of them indigenous um community is another the chicano movement yeah oh my goodness i had never resonated so much with the word chicano mm -hmm. chicana 
What does that really mean for people that don't really kind of get it? So let me get first into the misconception because a lot of people think that it's a Mexican person or the Mexican dis, uh, descent that was born in the U.S., mm -hmm. like being Mexican-American, right? Mm -hmm. But no, Chicano really means like you are saying, F your labels, you're not going to tell me who I am. Like I'm going to reconnect my indigenous roots and mm -hmm. I'm going to call myself what I, what I want. So mm -hmm. I'm a Chicano, I'm a Chicana. Mm -hmm. And just really preserving the knowledge and the wisdom alive. It was, it was for me, you know, I, my mom went to Garfield High School, so she was here during the times where they did the walkouts and, wow. and all that stuff. She was a part of the Garfield when that happened. And, you know, people standing up for their rights and, and, um, and, and really finding their identity during a time, a, a very racist, racist time. This is the time where, like, Martin Luther King, you know, was, was doing their marches. And so, you know, people in our community said, well, we have a history here, too. And that history is, it goes way back to the Aztec and the Mayans. Yes. And it really was the beginning of that connection. What the specifics were of that, we didn't know. But we had paintings and we had artists like Paul Botteo, like, I mean, really profound Chicano artists that went and muraled up the whole East LA. And this is the 60s. Wow. You know, and really reconnecting what that is. And and at the same time, AIM is starting to come up, mm -hmm. right? And so the Chicano movement and AIM start to go, hey, we're kind of the same. Let's fight the same struggles. When they did that, then they went, well, come to the sweat lodges then. Come to the sun dances then. Ceremony. And that was our, us, our introduction. The orphan children. Chicanos really are orphaned. Yes. We're orphans who named ourselves. Mm -hmm. who said, hey, you know what? You're not going to call me Mestizo, Wetback, Beaner. Um, I'm a Chicano connected to Aslan, connected to our original grandfathers, which are the Maya, the Mexica, and the Azteca. They didn't know what it meant to say that, but they were correct. Mm -hmm. They were correct. I hate that word, by the way. Uh Amigo. Amigo? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just in the 60s that that's and then and then you have, you know, powerful journal, journalists like Ruben Salazar who start writing about like the atrocities that are happening in, in Los Angeles because there was a I know a brother, he's gonna be on our podcast soon. Hopefully we can get him on here, where he's done his old thesis on how um racist Los Angeles was towards people of color or Mexican descent, yes. right? Where the, uh, what, what he has his thesis on, incarceration culture. Wow, that's powerful. Incarcerate. How did it start? What did it happen? And mm. back in the 40s, there was a lot of um, immigrant families in Los Angeles who had a lot of kids. What are we going to do with these kids that are running around here? They think they can go over there to Long Beach and hang out with the white kids. And they think they can go over here to, you know, Westwood and hang out with the white kids over there. There's a problem over here. Mm -hmm. And so they hire racist cops and create a juvenile system. It's almost the same kind of approach of boarding school. Yes. The, the, the residential schools that the, the, the Native Americans in Canada kind of 
they, they were just taken from their families. Well, you were taken from your family over here because a guy across the street over there was drinking a beer. And since you were close enough to him, you had to be associated to him. So guess what? You're going to jail. And now you're in juvenile hall. And, you know, one of the concepts that I think it's so dehumanizing about the, the present industrial complex, how these companies really make money mm-hmm. out of separating families. Because yeah. that's, you know, and now with the war on drugs, that it's really a war against the people. They're still making profit out of them. They're still, they're still... There's still a catch, right, at the expense of the, the, the well-being of the people. But the most horrifying thing about this is that the same system that built the residential schools, the same system that built the jails and prison, has now built the immigration system that it's literally putting kids in cages. Mm. And the concept, it's still the same thing, kind of like kill the Indian and save the man. Right. Because only this man can produce and only your labor to mano de obras, what counts, what you can produce, not your life, not what you can give, not your feelings, not you're not worthy as a human being. It's only what you can produce. Absolutely. Which, Which is more of a caste system, you know, it where, is. where your, your, your limit is a teacher, like mm-hmm. in Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Your limit is a teacher. You can only teach us how to, you know, whatever it is that, 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 they, that they have resources to teach, right? Because sometimes they don't have anything. Yeah. Right. So they go outside and they start, you know, teaching, which is the way it should be. But I think if we organize ourselves better, if we start to break down the barriers and the barriers and the differences of indigenous individuals, because when Chicanos stood up and said, we're no longer orphans, we're Chicanos, then now the Lakotas can relate to us. Mm-hmm. Right. Now the, the, the Dines and the, and all the people of Turtle Island can go, well, he's a Chicano. That's the way. When I went to Mexico City and I played at the Socalo in 2012, man, that was the, one of the greatest days of my life. Rocco introduced me as the Chicano. Here's the Chicano, my homie Chicano, my, my, my Chicano brother from the Varios of Aslan, he called it. Wow. And I was oh, like, that Whoa. gave me the chills. I was like, wow, like I get to represent our community in Mexico City on one of the biggest platforms that I've ever played in. It was in front of 10,000 10, people. Wow. What, what a moment. It was, it was an incredible moment. And I, I, all I kept thinking was I'm representing everyone he just mentioned, which is all the Chicano, the Chicano movement, the Chicano music, the Chicano vibe. What did we, what did we create here in Los Angeles in the early nineties, you know, with Aslan underground, with Quinto Sol, with, with the blues experiment, with Ozo Motley, with, I mean, the list goes on and on with the, the, the people who contributed to this message, to um, putting out, like, like Armando wasn't kidding. We, we had to tell the community, go research the Zapatistas. And how do we do that? By writing it in a song. Let me tell you, those lyrics are so inspiring. Hermano, my kids are bumping your songs with me. <laughs> Mexica, tiawi, Mexica, tiawi. And it's so amazing. They, they're never out of style. They, it, this is poetic 
ancient wisdom that it's gonna continue to be passed on from one generation to another. It's, that's a beautiful contribution to the world. And I, you know, I've always been like, I worked in the marketing industry for years and Mm. I was around like celebrities and Mm. stuff. And I was really against like being like a groupie, you know, like, (laughs) oh, hell no, I'm not gonna make a fool out of myself. (laughs) But now with people like, like you, like Jaguar, um, a Somali, like these are manos that are so brilliant. I don't care making a fool out of myself. <laughs> I want to be a groupie, and it's really the the wisdom, the the lyrics, the the poetry itself. Yeah. It's so amazing, and to see my little kids singing and bumping that music, it's oh, it's such a beautiful, proud parenting moment. To be honest, well, thank you. You know when I. I don't know if I ever shared this, but the reason I wrote that passionately, I don't know if it's going to sound, it may sound a little selfish too, but I felt like I need to give a message to my children. Mm. I need to let them know that when I'm gone, I left something. And it resonates. It does. It does. It's, it's your heart speaking. Mm. It's, it's, it's not it's so emotional. much different. It makes me tear up because yeah. if they ever get lost, they can put my CD in there. Just like I was, you know. And if I was able to do that for my kids, that you know, it would resonate to other. other. And it did. Now, you mean you're talking about your kids. You know, I got a really deep message from another one after the show. Armando was like, I grew up listening to Elvu. Now I have children who are listening to Elvu. Yeah, yeah, I saw that message. It was pretty deep, right? I was like, wow. I, we we do have a fan that's like curious on on, on your pins. Oh. Um. Mm. You know, I don't want to disappoint any of our audiences, but can you go ahead and break down those beautiful pins that you have on you? <laughs> of course. On on this side, uh, these pins right here. This is. Daniel Hernandez, Paul Rea, and David Sullivan. They're, they were all killed by the police. Wow. These were given by the families that you know we march with and we try to support as much as possible. Um, this is a Zapatista mom with her child. So I have it in, next to my heart. In my left side, because it represents zapatismo, abajo y a la izquierda. Then there's a little dove uh, for peace. And it reminds me that if we want peace, we must prepare for war. Mm. And that's why we fight. Mm. And I have uh, the Chicano power uh, patch that was given to me by one of our hermanos up in North California. And it was just beautiful gift mm. uh kind of like his blessing like herman i see you you're doing good work keep going wow so you know i, I this is a way of life really it's mm-hmm. you know it's not something that i only do when i'm on the streets it's really my my life and you know i'm human i don't get it right every time i'm i'm still learning i'm growing and but i'm not afraid to admit when i make mistakes I, in the country i want to be questioned i want to be if I'm messing up, please let me know because I, my community deserves the best. Mm-hmm. 
And the only way that I can become that person is if I know my mistakes so I can grow. Mm-hmm. So, wow. I, you know, I have another, you know, I, I stumbled upon your social media page. And what shook me is that you set up a, a press conference for, I, I believe, a, a young lady that has a missing daughter. Esmeralda. Right? Yes. That was, that hit me hard. Mm. Yvette, because for, for you to go out of your way to, because I know how difficult that is to just get attention and bring awareness to a situation like that, especially if you're a minority. But um, tell us a little bit about that. So one of our friends, um, Lumo, shout out to Lumo. Thank mm-hmm. you. He shared with me about this case and this mom that her daughter has been missing since December. Mm-hmm. And she's gotten no help, no nothing, right? So we set up a meeting with her, and sure enough, um, she started explaining, breaking down what happened, and turns out that she did what every parent is supposed to do in a case like this, right? You call the police, file a missing persons report, and hope that there's a search and rescue team to go look for your daughter, but that's not what happened. Mm. They wrote the report, but they didn't put her in the system. Mm. So three months later, March comes around and she comes across a detective that is familiar with the family because of another crime that they were victim of. And she tells him about Esmeralda who's been missing. So she che- he goes to check the system and he's like, yeah, she's not in the missing person's system. I'm going to make sure that she's there and I'm going to help you as much as I can. But now this detective is from another police station, so it is outside his jurisdiction. Mm. And there's not much that he can do. Mom has been trying to get answers from the police department. She's gone a few times, and every time they just leave her out there waiting, no answer, no update, nothing. There's no information to provide because they haven't done anything for her. Mm. So now that we are advocating for her, and and, I want to explain what being an advocate means because I see the word advocacy being used very often and especially in this movement and yes you're an advocate when you're speaking up for people right but being a personal advocate means that you're taking the case and you are providing information so this person can make their own decisions without being pressured but they can make the most informed decision that they can make Mm -hmm. so we're advocating for this family so i'm the point of contact between her and the police so she does not have to be harassed. She does not have to be intimidated. The time that they went to her house, they were, she, the police had their hand on the gun. Mm. And she made a comment like, uh, she asked her daughters to go into the bathroom, one to stay recording at all time in case anything happened. And the police, the, the officer goes like, ¿Qué te voy a hacer? like, why are you so afraid? And she's like, well, I don't know. You tell me you have your hand on the gun. So for them, it's normal behavior. They don't, I don't think they can even see how traumatizing that is for a community. No, they know. They're trained to do that. And, and That's it, what they're trained to do. It, it, they're trained to intimidate. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but on. it becomes so normal for them, you know, that right. they, I don't think they're processing really the effect they're having unless they really pull out the gun and do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like this that's is like extremist. Is this, is this like, LAPD? Yes. That's the Newton Police Station. Wow. In South Central. So I'm we, not surprised, right, Zero? 
it's it's that's what they're trained to do. I mean, look, we got to we got to break colonial perspective and understand that when there was a plantation, there was an overseer. Mm-hmm. That overseer didn't give a shit about slaves. He was there to keep them regulated. So, Karis one was correct when he said overseer, officer, it's the same thing. They're not trained to be compassionate towards mm-hmm. you. They're trained to keep you in line. Absolutely. Keep you waiting. But, you know, this story really reminds me. It's crazy that I started talking about the performance in Mexico City because the reason I went to go perform there was about the over 150,000 missing people who never, ever got to see or hear about their loved one ever again. In other words, in Mexico, it was normal to just, oh, she didn't come home. Oh, wow. You know. In Mexico today, 11 women go missing every single day. So so when, when you were in the beginning stages of setting up this press conference and did you reach out to like major news sources or the local televisions and like you basically, basically just turn your back, turn, the, the, turn their back against the, the whole situation? Okay. So let me, I need to explain something. I don't like going to the media i never have in the all the work that we've done i don't really set up press conferences unless it's needed right so i'm thinking this is a missing girl um they gotta do something she's getting no help from authorities the community is not informed of what's happening because just from the time that she went missing there's over 20 women not women girls underage girls children teenagers who have gone missing, who are all black and brown, and no one's looking for them. And I see them do this all the time with white kids and white women. Oh my goodness, they have resources, they have helicopters, they have dogs, they have a whole team looking for these people, but no one's looking for our girls, right? Right. So I, I, it's a, a lot of like swallowing my pride, my, you know, like I, this is what I have to do for the family, that's what I'm gonna do. Only one Spanish speaking outlet, La Opinión, shout out to La Opinión for doing this article about Esmeralda, but only three outlets came to the conference. None of them actually showed or published the interview of the mom speaking. Mm. She was behind the microphone and in front of the camera for about 10 minutes explaining what happened. And they didn't televise not one single second of that. Wow. And the thing is, like, we were calling also for independent journalists from the community, which only one came out. And at this point, TikTok has given me a bigger response than the actual community from Los Angeles. That's right. I think it was on a TikTok video. I, I've... We created. I, I don't the, know where I stumbled upon that press conference, but I think it was a like a behind the scene clip of of the mother speaking out. Yes, on the microphone, and I saw a couple of cameras there, a couple mm-hmm. of photographers there. But, but you know, it, it it just goes to show the greed and the evil amongst the, the mainstream media, where if they feel like it, it's not clickbait, mm-hmm. it's not profitable, then they're not they're not going to cover it. Or if you're not speaking the same language, you know, if you're not like articulated, mm-hmm. that's how they will label this someone who is not fitting that label that. Ex, 
expectation of who you're supposed to be. If you're anything outside those limits or that margin, like, okay, you're not worthy of being televised. So they only passed her picture, the missing person poster, but they did not give any context to the story. And I'm pretty sure because it involves the police. Well, and this is why you are in the position that you're in to, to give a voice for the unheard you know you know i've they've really taken so much from me that i'm not afraid anymore i'm not afraid of my face my name i i'm that's my zapatismo right here i'm willing to be the person fighting the one taking the heat so my people don't have to go through this so my children don't have to go through it so my community doesn't have to go through it it's okay when people cannot protest it's okay when people cannot come out it's not the beginning or the end of the movement but I'm willing to do this, and I really put my soul and heart into this so other families don't have to do it. I'm tired of seeing my people suffer, and I really, there's not one person, not one single person that I've met that they don't have a story. So, you know, with this, I, I will, uh, going back to Esmeralda, the day of the press conference was the first time a deputy came up to the family and said, let me see if I can find something. Let me give you an update. First time in seven months. Wow. We will literally have to be out there standing with cameras in front of us for them to say like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to finally give an update to this family. The funny thing is like, there's no update because they haven't done anything. They haven't been looking for her. And now they're trying to claim that they did file their report. They didn't. Mm. A detective, another detective from another station told the family, your daughter's not in the system, and he did it. That's the only thing he can do because he's not in his jurisdiction. So it's just, it doesn't make sense to me when just a few months ago they the FBI busted a big sex trafficking operation here in Los Angeles. 33 people rescued. Wow. And so we are in one of the epicenters of the most affected places the, that gets more traffic from human and sex trafficking, and yet no one is looking for our girls. Wow. It, it just eerily reminds me so much of Mexico and how, how we're we're going down this road, you know, we're going down the road where, but it, 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 this is Roman reality. You know, you, mm -hmm. you this is a modern day Rome, right? So yeah. the people have that type of attitude. The protectors of the community have that type of attitude. If you don't know what that is, go study it. It's everywhere. You know, it's their main principle, right? So, this is such we, a jam-packed episode, guys. You know, we we as as indigenous individuals have to finally get to a point where we use our tools to. What I loved about going to Mexico, and fighting during the Huichol fight, mm -hmm. like when they were fighting for their the the sacred land of Wirikuta, is that they tried to, even though they were fighting against this uh, transnational company. They did it with not using negative um, words. Like we were like, se defiende. And they're like, no, 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 no. We can't defend the earth. The, the, the earth defends us. Don't yeah. twist it. 
we're just voicing out that this is wrong mm. and we'll use her to help us get this mission done because we automatically think that we as people are these tiny little ants that walk on top of the surface of the earth have the power to affect a beautiful planet that pushes up three miles in the air an electrical charge that if we combined it would destroy and disintegrate us. Remember how profound she is and how big she is. And that's what they reminded me of. They reminded me that the, the rock that we're standing on is very, very powerful. Gain energy from her to challenge those that are not connected to it. Well, you know, it's the way that I pictured this in my brain is thinking of the planet Mother Earth as a whole as a living organism, like, yeah. like another human, mm-hmm. just like we have cells and we have a be- in the whole universe within ourselves. We are part of that universe because we're within the not seen, mm-hmm. you know, and humans, we can either be the cancer or be the immune system. Mm. And some of us un- unconsciously without being aware are acting like the cancer mm. when some of us are really trying to become the immune system mm. and help Pachamama cleans itself, heal itself. It's not about us. It's about her. Mm. And we just have a purpose and potential within the time that we're existing today. Mm. And what we do with that, it's up to each one of us. And I know it's hard to break from colonial levels and the way of life, but you know, you can start at home have, growing like a little plant and reconnecting with it and building a relationship with it and just really start from within. It's, That's it's, the only way that I can. It's small steps. Really small steps. You know, the journey back home is a very long journey of small steps, right? And those small steps, if you get wise at it, become bigger steps right and then all of a sudden you're not stepping anymore you're flying you know we evolve in our understanding and in our culture i want to thank you for coming yvette and sharing your story sharing your activism sharing uh your time with your community and being effective you know i i i hope that our community here at la natives um really gets inspiration from your story because one Thank you're you. a very powerful woman a mother a family a family person um and those are the type of people that la natives is going to recognize because it's a collective of souls a collective of warriors a collective of natives that are going to contribute to putting back the pieces that they felt that they destroyed you don't have enough power to destroy this. When you came over here with your boats and your and your documents and your books and your lies, you didn't have the power to destroy this. We knew it was going to be destroyed. Our elders said, our time has come, but one day it would return. The sun will shine on us again. Absolutely. And I think we're here. Yeah, but definitely when when people are contributing, even on the smallest of levels to the biggest of levels, 
right now is the time for our community to come together, not fight or be very critical over little details. I heard a poem, um, and just to, to leave you with this, I, I heard a poem that I called Beautiful Shades of Brown. And the, the, one of the most powerful things that I think came out of my heart in that poem is that it says, our simple existence is a romantic poem of resistance. Mm. That's what we are. Absolutely. Just the fact that we exist is resistance. And again, protesting is not the, the beginning or the end. It's an opportunity gathering to educate each other and grow together. But we need to take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. We need to become really, the Zapatistas say to make a change, you need a little bit of shame, dignity, and a whole bunch of organizing. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're at. Mm -hmm. Organizing, mm -hmm. talking, mm -hmm. brainstorming, coming together, and putting the ego aside. Remember that this is not even for us. It's for the people that will be after us. Mm -hmm. We're not only fighting for the dead, we're fighting for the living. Right. And we cannot afford to continue to fight and tear down each other. Healing and reconciliation must come from ourselves as community, but also within ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's the calling of the ancestors within us, each one of us. It's not in the books. It's not outside. It's only within. Absolutely. That's the important part of... I think understanding our culture is that it was a very sovereign culture. In other words, you were responsible for you, whatever you knew, how much initiative you took to learn something that was rewarded in our culture, you know? So that's this type of state that we, uh, although in, on, in here on this platform in LA natives, we have some really good cornerstones like, Masatsin's information, his book and his poster. That's an important piece of information. Huge. It, because when you start, that's the step one, is getting that. Two is conceptualizing it. Three is implementing it. Once you implement those things, man, you're on another level because these Rockefellers, Carnegie's, and all these elites were lazy. They were lazy because they said that we can keep you stupid forever. Right? Because all we have to teach you is how to hate each other and how to compete with each other. Mm. Right? So they were very lazy in that way. But our ancestors said, no, we, we have a system of time. We have a system of time that we can trace back 26,000 and 26,000 forward and back. And it's cyclical and you have a place in it mm -hmm. because of the time you were born and what energy was given to you at that time. Like Masatin said, a tiny string that goes directly to the sun. That tiny string carries an informational, it carries information and it hits you not in your mind, but in your heart. It gives you a purpose. Your mind helps you accomplish that purpose. Let's continue with the purpose. We all have purpose. I'm talking to you, all of you in the reservations, 
all those little kids that you feel like you have nothing and and you don't have you have a past that goes back at least 1000 years if you sit quietly and talk to your heart it will talk back that's why i say we're a little bit human and a little bit cosmos yeah we're very powerful beings and your work is very apparent and thank you for coming on our show and la natives you know go research zapatismo um pay respects to the women nation you know know that they're right beside you fighting this fight we're fighting no let's change it like the wicholas told us we're contributing to your health living here on this planet if you follow our lead you'll live a good life we're not asking for power over you we're asking you to leave us alone and let us get back to what we know that's power to the people exactly not power over the people power to the people absolutely cuz you're right trauma does i've i've understood that self-imposed trauma which is native ritual right because when you go and you sit on a vision quest you don't eat for 4 days mm-hmm. and you're in nature by yourself if it gets cold you're cold if it gets hot you're hot you got to deal with the elements Green i thought veins. that was the most profound thing because it makes a person so sovereign that he saw the moon come out he saw the sun come out he saw the night come he saw the day come within that time frame he formulated his own heart and knew how he was going to live in this existence wow. self imposed trauma when you go into the sweat lodge when you get covered up and all the lights go out and all that's glowing is those rocks those ancient people the stone people they wake in your blood up it's time to wake up we need you we need all of you we need your love we need your compassion we need your strength it's a very peculiar time but we have each other That's what they said. We had each other and we have the earth. That was the main thing that they did was connect us to this earth and respect it. Not own it. We can't heal it. We can't we can clean it as best as we can, but it cleans itself. Have her shake for about 30 seconds and you'll see how clean it comes becomes. We have that power to connect. So stay connected. We'll see you soon. We'll see you on Wednesday. Thank you for coming, Ivan. Armando, LA Natives, Lasukamat, Leo Mateo. Love you all. Yeah.